All right, guys, it is my great delight to welcome the absolutely wonderful Chimamanda to the show. She has no equal. Hello, Jen. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Okay, let's talk about Americana. What a masterpiece. I'd love to just start at the top if we can with the very first chapter. Of course, here we see our lead. By the way, Inside Book Club, we have an entirely long text thread on how we pronounce her name. And then we're gonna, I'm going to hear it from you now. And we're going to see who won because we were all over the place, all over the place on what act, where's the accent? Is it a longie? Is it a shorty? Here's the thing. Even though it's spelled differently, it's actually pronounced Jennifer. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't. Stop it. Ifemelu. Stop it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again. Ifemelu. Ifemelu. Okay. That was the lead. That was the lead response. Efemelu, we love her. So here we see Efemelu heading to a braiding salon, of course, making judgments about the women who work there. Do you think that her time spent in America changed her perception about these women? And w- would her reaction have been different if she had just arrived maybe? in the country. What do you think about that? We're guessing on characters. You made them up, of course, but we like to suppose of them as real in real life and wonder what some of their paths might've been. Hmm, That's interesting. Would she, I'm sure she would have. I mean, she'd spent time in the U S and, and of course it shifts you and it changes you. And so she's not the person she was when she first got to the U S right. Right. So of course, yes, I think she would have felt very differently about them had she just arrived, right? And also, can I just say, I mean, I think we now live in a world where I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing for one to make judgments. I think the judgment should be informed and honest, but somehow it almost feels as though having an opinion has become judgmental. You are <laughs> and, not wrong. And I think it sometimes gets in the way of people just being allowed to think. I mean, I think we need to be able to think, but I also think, that we need to think clearly, right? We need to be informed about our opinions, all of that. But anyway, so back to Femelu. She, <laughs> she's an interesting character, isn't she? Yes, she, uh, she is. And I'm happy. I mean, you said, oh, we all loved her. And I thought, oh, that's nice because I think a number of people didn't. And that's also fine. And I didn't want, I mean, one of the things I had in mind in writing her was, I was very much aware of how very often women writers writing women characters are often expected to follow certain rules. And one of those rules is likability. You're supposed to write female totally. characters. Likeable. Yes. And likable is often a very simple thing, right? She has to conform and be conventional and put others first and all of those things. She's not really allowed the flaws that human beings have, you know, that in general, the, the, the likable character. And when I set out to write Ifemelu, I had that in mind and I did not want for Ifemelu to be conventionally likable. <laughs> mm. So when she's I like at this, I like this. <laughs> and there's a bit. I mean, obviously, people also ask me quite often how much Ifemelu is me, and I, you know, I don't think I think she's much more interesting than I am. I think she's had a much more interesting life. Mine has been fairly, fairly boring, but of course, I think every character I write has elements of me. And so, actually, a very good friend of mine said to me that he said to me, "In creating Ifemelu, you made yourself without your warmth." Wow. 
Wow. So this is really, Jen, this is just my way of saying that I make judgments all the time. That's really what this whole rambling has been about. I find that so interesting. Do you agree with that assessment? It made me think. I mean, I was amused by it and I thought it was kind of perceptive of him. And then I started to think about it and I thought, you know, I kind of see why he would say that. I don't think I'm as, I think she's maybe a bit more courageous than I am. Do you? Yeah, yeah. But yes, she, I guess she doesn't have my warmth. And I think that was maybe when I was deliberately trying to make her not be conventionally likable. Yeah. I think that made us drawn to her. I think that's why we liked her. Because we saw complexity in her that we all share. And you let her say on the outside things that the rest of us say on the inside. And I admire those characters always. And so I love how you wrote her. I'm so fascinated with novelists. I mean, I truly am like, I just want to live in your house and watch you work. And I want to ask you questions about your process. I do. Yes, I do. It's so fascinating. Did a family come to you? How did she come to you? Is that a weird question? No, no. Mm -hmm. It's not a weird question, but it's one that's difficult to answer in a way that is, is wholly coherent because the process isn't always. I and mean, I, I sometimes feel that I have to make up answers to questions of this sort because when I'm actually doing the work, I'm not, there's a lot going on. And, and I like to say that writing fiction is what I love. It's the thing that makes me so happy when it's going well. And it's, it's a kind of ridiculous happiness. I really do feel transported. I love this so much. I cannot get enough of this talk. I want you to talk for a thousand hours about the writing and the creative process because it's such a special gift. You're so gifted. I really do think that this is something I was given, right? I didn't make it, but, but I made the choice to sort of use it. But at the same time, it really, it really is central in my life. So it's the thing that apart from the fam- my family and people I love, my writing really controls my life. When it's going well, I'm happy. When it's not going well, I am an absolute mess. And do not ask me where I am at this point because I will not tell you. But anyway. <laughs> I relate to this so much. I don't write fiction. I write nonfiction. But when I'm in a certain like chapter or place in the story and every single word is like drudging it up from the bottom of the ocean or even worse, what I do, tell me if you ever do this in novel writing, I will write 5,000 words in the wrong direction. I know it. I know I'm going in the wrong direction. I feel it, but I keep thinking I'm going to get it. Somehow I'm going to close the loop. I'm going to get to where I'm going and I don't. Yeah. And then you have to delete 5,000 words. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I hate this job. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also why I think people who don't really understand writing, when you, you know, you spend so much time writing and then there's nothing to show for it. They're looking at you like, well, right. And they don't realize <laughs> it's really often not a measure of how much time one spends. It's actually in some ways how fortunate you get, how lucky you get when it, when it goes well, really. Yes. Yes. That's so true. How long, well, let's talk about this one specifically. Did Americana take you from putting your fingers on the keyboard to handing it into your editor? I'm going to say maybe two years. Oh, yeah. Oh, you logged some time. Oh, yes, yes. I'm, I'm also, I'm a slow writer. I, I don't, you know, I, the, the, I found that the older I get, the slower everything is. 
<laughs> including my ability to make sentences. Uh, when I was 25, I was working on five short stories at the same time. Yeah, totally. Now, now at the grand old age of 44, it is you know, remarkable when I can write a bloody paragraph. So yeah, <laughs> quit laughing. I can't quit laughing because I'm I'm 47. I'm just ahead of you. And so now to the mix, we have added children, a whole adult life that also requires tending to. I think it's their fault. Can we blame them? Is that fine? <laughs> Can we say the people around us have made writing harder? Because I'm yes, I'm prepared to co-sign on that. Yeah. It's everybody, it's, it's the people around us, it's the whole bloody world, it's everything but us. That's the thing to say to yourself. I like this. I'm going to, I'm going to actually try that out. Okay, perfect. But you know what I forgot to ask you that I would just love to hear from you before we get into the next sort of book related question. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about you personally, your story arc and where you started and where you are now and who are your people and where are you in the world? Like this, of course, deeply informs your writing, obviously. Okay. So I was born in Nigeria. I grew up in Nigeria. My father was a professor. My mother worked at the university. My parents, actually, maybe I should start by saying that the most significant thing that's happened to me recently, which has really just changed everything for me, is that I, my parents died. Mm. My father died in June. My mother died a few months later. In, oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. And so wow. it's, I, I just feel like a different person in many ways, because I was very close to my parents. They were just the loveliest people. And because both of them died in many ways unexpectedly, it's really shifted. It's completely remade me. So that's the most significant thing about me. I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank you. Thank you. But the reason that it is so significant is because they, they shaped me. So I grew up the fifth of six children in a university town in Nigeria, which was uh, Musuka, which is where in some ways Obinze in the book, actually in some ways I feel like Obinze is more me than if I'm hmm. yeah. So Obinze, yeah. So Obinze's background is very much mine. So actually, I mean, I really just sort of um, used a lot of what it was like for me growing up in Osoka. My father was a professor in the way that Obinze's mother is. I was the fifth. I am the fifth of six children. We were very close-knit. We still are. Yeah. And in some ways, we've, of course, been drawn closer together because we are all just collectively suffering now that our parents are gone. For sure. So I, I did well in school. And when you do well in school, you're supposed to become a doctor in Nigeria. And so I didn't want, I did not want to be a doctor. I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to write. I was a child who, at the age of six, I was writing stories for my mother. And my mother, God bless her, had a lot of time for me. So she would read those things and she would keep them. Oh my gosh. Um, it's so because when we moved houses, I, I said to her, where are those papers? I said she doesn't know. So actually, you know, those early papers are lost. But anyway, I went ahead and started studying medicine because that's what was expected of me. But at the same time, I always knew that I would write. So my plan was that I would become a psychiatrist. Mm. I to be a psychiatrist, seriously, because that's the only branch of medicine that I, I found even remotely interesting. And then I was going to use my patient stories for my fiction. That was my plan. Okay. But, but one year into medical school in Nigeria, and I was so unhappy, and I just, I left. I decided I cannot do this. And that's when I came to the U.S. And I wanted to study something that was not a science, because I had spent my whole life studying physics and chemistry and biology, and I had had it. 
And this is the thing I love about the US. I love the American liberal arts college system. I loved that I could take these classes and everything. I took classes in music and philosophy and, and I just loved it. And in the end, I had to sort of invent a major, which was communication and political science. But that's because I was just taking random classes and everything. Totally. And then I was writing, right? So when I came to the US, and actually I should say that my first publication was when I was 15 in Nigeria. Wow. Yeah. Well, where, um, was, where was it published? It was published in Nigeria. A whole a book? Very, yeah. A terrible book of poems. Terrible. And I say this, I, and I hope nobody ever reads that book. But anyway, I did write I've it. I've said this a million times about my early writing. I'm like, Lord, may they burn spontaneously on whatever shelf they live on. Like, <laughs> please, it's if you so, love it's, me. It's so horrifying when people say I'm researching you and I'm thinking, oh, Lord. Same. Please oh do, my not, God. do not do not go too far back. <laughs> I'm dying laughing. Okay, but you know what? We all have to strike out somewhere. We, we've got to go. True. And we, ha- we, yes. don't, we don't get to start at the top. We got to start this at the bottom. This is true. And I guess, I guess in some ways, I say this to young writers to say, you don't actually drop from the sky perfectly formed. You know, you're, we're always sort of making that journey. So yeah, so I came to the US. I kept writing while I was in college. I finished the, the manuscript, sent it out. It was rejected by everyone. I was horrified because I thought I had written the best novel in the world. And then later I realized I'm so grateful that nobody took that book because it was false. It was a book I wrote thinking this is what people in America want to read. It was such a a very false novel. I'd gone to the libraries and bookstores and I had read the books that were kind of the cool books. And then I kind of wrote my own version of it and it was complete rubbish. I'm so interested in this. What kind of book was it? I'm curious what you thought Americans want to read. Well, actually, it wasn't even so much that I thought I knew because I, you know, I would go to the bookstores and look at, so it was sort of a certain kind of immigrant novel. There, there were Chinese versions of it, even European versions of it. So the person who comes from China or Vietnam or even Bulgaria and somehow America becomes sort of the promised land, right? Or someone who's fleeing. Actually, there were some African versions of it as well. And the African versions were often people fleeing war and poverty and all kinds of terrible things. So your life is horrible. Then you come to the U.S. and everything is okay. And sort of, for me, it was this this kind of literature with the theme of gratitude, which just felt to me, I don't know. Anyway, so I wrote a book about people in Nigeria who had those political strife and terrible things happened. And then they came to the U.S. and everything was fine. And it was rejected. And I'm happy that it was. I then started writing the book that I actually wanted to write, the book that actually, as I like to say, was speaking to me. Yeah. And so that book turned out to be my first novel, Purple Hibiscus, which is set in small town Nigeria, yeah. and which is about the things I care about. So it's about religion. I grew up Catholic. And it's also about politics. I've long been interested in politics, but it was genuine. And that I also had trouble getting accepted. I got many rejections. And I remember some of them I will never forget. Like what? One said to me, nobody knows where Nigeria is and nobody cares. Oh, no. Yep. I'm so yep. happy you didn't listen to him. Because those people can crush your spirit. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a new year, beloveds. We made it to 2022. This is a time where some of us may set resolutions or maybe intentions or words for our year. It's a great time to really reflect on where we need to just pull some different levers in our lives. This is why I'm also just so excited to introduce you 
to the Me Course series, which is a series that I have put out with my incredible team. Our mission here is simple. This is inspirational, educational, and actionable content, as I like to say, for the rest of us. It's not heady graduate level work here, okay? But it is what we all need from finance to building better habits to cultivating simplicity in the name of wellness and more. These are some of the pillars where I personally have seen the most life change in myself and in others. And so with me course, we are telling you what actually does work. And I do it with some friends, friends who are experts in their respective fields, and they talk you through it too. We've really distilled it all down to the best of the best, a true highlight reel of everything you need to know in real life and how to make it work for you without you needing to commit hours upon hours of your time, which you don't have. Here's what you can expect. Four 15-ish minute sessions, and that's it. But also, as you will see, that is enough. We They are packed and condensed without tons of fluff. We also have a whole library of bonus resources to explore and implement and remind you of what you learned. You get it all. Let's start learning together and be here for our lives in this way. So register now at mecourse.org and use the code for the love to save $10 off already discounted prices. This is the best deal. I can't wait. Mecourse.org. Join us. Great stories are powerful, right? That's why I love this podcast. We get to hear people from all walks of life talking about their obstacles and their wins. And you know another place we get to do that? The Gin Hatmaker Book Club. And I want you to join today because if you love this podcast, you're going to love the book club. Here's the deal. Each month, we'll dive into a fantastic book and we read all kinds of stuff, fiction, memoirs, self-help, all of it. Every single book is something I have read and loved. And I just know you will too. After you sign up every month, I'll send you a box with the book and other fun treats. Plus, your membership comes with a whole slew of perks. You get resources like reading plans, weekly summaries, discussion questions. Plus, you get tons of exclusive community stuff. You get access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with me and all your fellow members. And there's a monthly Facebook live chat session with me and sometimes some surprise guests. Sometimes I pop into the Zoom meetings of our local chapters, which is always delightful. Plus, we do some cool stuff with the book's author. They curate these awesome Spotify playlists just for us. Plus, I record a podcast with the author or another special guest, and we talk about the book. It is an incredible way to cap it all off. And you know what makes a book club great? The people. This community is the kindest, most supportive group you can possibly imagine. So sign up today at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We are here waiting to welcome you into the sisterhood with open arms. So join us at jenhatmakerbookclub.com today. Okay, back to our show. Let's talk about Ifamilu going back to Nigeria. 
after 13 years in America. You made that decision for her. Why did you choose that for her? And how do you think it impacted her particular state of being in the story and even growing deeper and understanding for her coming, you know, for all of us readers? I think in some ways that actually the, if, if the book has a kind of sort of central propelling idea, it's, it's what is home. Mm. What, what is home? I really I, love that. So I sort of to go from character to author for a minute. I was in the U.S. for three and a half years before I went back. So obviously my sense of alienation wasn't as, as profound as hers, yeah. but I still had that. Yeah. Know? So I think for her, what I, it's that idea that you, you, you've been in a place and everything ostensibly is fine. Yeah. You have this blog that's doing well, but there's yeah. something in your soul that is empty. And the reason I say that she's courageous is that I think so many of us have that feeling, but we do not act on that feeling. Because in some ways, it's, I guess it's safer and it's easier not to act. But she does. You know, yeah. She takes that decision. And it's a big decision yes. to kind of just pack up and go back to Nigeria. Yes. Especially because you're leaving something that's going well. And you're seeking out the uncertain. But, but you sort of feel that the hole in your, in your soul might just be filled if you go back. And so she goes back. And... And I think it, it's, you know, for me, that that question of what home is is very interesting in general. And I believe that we can have multiple homes. I also think I, I have, you know, this is my home in the U.S. My home is also in Lagos, in Nigeria. Both are important to me, but I know where my heart is. My heart is in my little ancestral hometown in Nigeria. Yes. That theme was resonant. Throughout, we talked a lot in the book club about that, about what home means and how we long for it. And that even having a successful life away from home doesn't deter, it doesn't cut off that feeling of like, I, I just, I just need my people and I just need my place. And I think that applies to a lot of people. We don't have to have our major home on another continent. It could, it could be geographically tighter in, but still. So I really kind of appreciated those themes because they felt so relatable. A lot of us could relate. Obviously, you just mentioned this, but two huge facets of the book were her blog. Mm. And then also the like attention paid to women's hair. <laughs> it's just endless. You don't know this about me, but I have my youngest two children are Ethiopian. They're adopted. And so one's a boy and one's a girl. The amount, the amount of hair questions and attempted touching and just, it just never ends. It literally never ends. My mm. daughter's 15 and she's How old is she? She's 15. She's a gorgeous supermodel beauty. Like she's got that Ethiopian, like she's got the bones in the forehead. She's beautiful. But I related to this part. You know, of course, one of her blogs is titled a Michelle Obama shout out plus hair as a race metaphor. And I just chuckled. Can you talk to me about this? Obviously you've experienced it, particularly being in the U S when you were here. I'm curious the difference between black hair obsession from a place like the U S versus of course, Nigeria, where also hair matters. I mean, hair matters. It matters everywhere, oh, but course. the reaction yeah, to it is different. 
I think, yes, very different. So in Nigeria, the, in some ways, hair is not the kind of political thing that it is in the, in, in the U.S. And I think it's because, again, in Nigeria, we're not black. We don't identify, we don't think of, of ourselves as black. Yeah. And we think of ourselves in terms of ethnicity and in terms of religion. Super, so, exactly so, right. Yep. So, so really, people are looking at you in Nigeria and just expecting you to be well turned out. Nigerians are, are really the most stylish people in the world, bar none, by far. Whenever I'm around my Nigerian friends, I'm like, I'm underdressed yet again. I cannot match this. I cannot match this level. It's so they mean, high. Yeah, they go for it. So hair, I mean, when I was growing up, I remember, you know, my mother would always have my hair very nicely done. But I remember thinking that I could not wait until I, I finished secondary school so that I could get my hair relaxed and so that I could start putting in long straight weaves, which I did when I turned 16. Okay. And it was the most exciting thing. And then I come to the U.S. And that's actually when, in some ways, I think my, my kind of what I would call my education, my kind of my racial education. Mm, gosh. Because, because I became Black in America. That's and right. And that's also when I started thinking about things. I started learning. I started reading African-American history because I didn't quite get things. And I think it's why today I'm still, I mean, I'm actually reading a cast, this um, really interesting book. And, you know, reading about American history, but particularly African-American history, just made me think, my God, really? All of these things happened, right? And it made me have just the most respect and admiration for this ethnic group in America called African-Americans, because that's actually what it is. It's an ethnic group. That's right. You're right. And I say that because I, I think it's important to make that distinction. There's race. So I'm black, right? In America, I'm black. That's right. But, but I'm not African-American. That's right. So, so my ethnic group in America is not African-American, but my race is black. And these are all identities I then started having to sort of grapple with and oh make gosh. sense of. And I think it was, it was actually an undergrad. I could not afford to go to a hair salon to get a relaxer because I just thought, my God, these people pay so much in this country to go to the hair salon. What? So much. So, so much. It's I a line item in my budget. <laughs> I uh -huh. then go to um, Target and I buy the relaxer kit and I put it in my hair and I burn my scalp. So I thought maybe this is not a good idea. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that was kind of how I stopped relaxing my hair before it then became embracing sort of my hair the way that God made it. And doing that also meant realizing that it had a meaning in sort of the wider American space. That when you have dreads or you have natural hair as a black woman, there are assumptions made about you. you know, so, <laughs> so the idea of the Afro maybe this person is kind of like a Black Panther light, maybe, right? Or you have dreadlocks and they're like, hmm, it seems either a bit crunchy and she does yoga and she, she sort of, or, or she's, uh, she's kind of a Black nationalist. Yes. And really you're thinking, no, she just likes her hair the way God made it. And sometimes people will ask you what you've done to your hair yeah. because it's not long and straight. And you're thinking, actually, no. You should be asking the black women who have long and straight hair what they've done because that's not how God made it. That's right. And this is not to say, of course, I mean, I think I feel very strongly about women having a wide range of choices. So I think, you know, straight hair is fine if that's what they want. But for me, I could, I just cannot ever straighten my hair. And it's very much related to my sense of self as a black woman. I just cannot, I just, I just, I just can't. It's just not, you know, 
I just can't. But also, you know, in, in writing Americana, I did sort of, you know, research and reading things and asking people things. And I remember even my sister, and this is, I used this, I used a bit of this, my sister's story for the character of Antiju. My sister is also a physician. And when she was going for her first interview, she was told by a dear friend not to wear her braids, to take the braids out and straighten her hair because it would make her appear more, quote unquote, professional. And so my sister did. And I remember hearing the story and thinking, this is just so, there's, there's a great sadness there for me, I think, because you're being asked to present yourself in a way that is not necessarily true to you. And this idea that beauty is such a narrow thing, right? And so that, that professionalism as well is such a narrow thing that we've defined as a straight hair. Or even if it's going to be curly, it's a certain kind of curly. It's sort of loose right. curls. It's kind That's of right. white woman curly. That's right. So I kind of wanted to write about that. And, you know, one of the things that's happened since Americana came out, and it's made me quite happy, is how many people have said to me, I did not have any idea about Black women's hair. And I did not, you know, and there's a woman in Washington, D.C., who's, who's sort of in charge of HR for this huge organization. And she said to me, I made judgments and I will never do that again. And it made me so happy. Oh, my goodness. She would interview somebody who had dreadlocks and immediately imagine that the dreadlocks meant something. Right, meant, you know, she's, and actually she was very honest. She said to me, I remember interviewing a woman with dreadlocks and thinking that she would not be a good team player. Oh my goodness. <laughs> wow. That's what she said. You know what? I appreciate her honesty. So did I. So did I. I love hearing what you're saying right now about the feedback you receive from Americana because, I mean, that book it did the deal. It was such a winner. It was, there's so much fanfare around it. So many accolades. You nailed it. You nailed it. And of course, a lot of your readers are white. I wonder as you were writing this novel, how you were very grounded and centered, knowing that your readers race, whatever, whatever it is, was going to impact the way they read this story. I wonder if you just thought, I'm going to write this true and straight. And my reader, no matter what they look like or where they're from, they're going to get like a solid, genuine story out of this. Did you feel really confident in not writing to a specific audience? Yes, I did. I mean, but this is how I've always felt about my writing, about my fiction. I've always felt that I'm going to tell the truth, by by which I mean a kind of emotional truth. I'm going to tell the story truthfully. I'm not going to think about audience. I never do. That's so good. When I'm writing fiction, I do not. When I'm writing nonfiction, sometimes I do because I kind of have a sense of what I want to do. But fiction, no. And it's because I think writing fiction and thinking about audience will, will lead you to censor yourself. Right, Because I think had I been thinking, oh, white Americans will read this, I would not have written that book the way that I did. But I wrote it and I was thinking, you know, I'm going to write what I want to write. I mean, that's always been a guiding principle for yes. me. Yes. And I have to also say that my novel before Americana, Half of the Yellow Sun, had done quite well. And so I remember thinking, nobody's going to buy Americana because they're all hated. But that's fine because I won't starve because Half of the Yellow Sun did okay. 
<laughs> I might think it was, but I want to write the book I want to read. Yes. So I, I felt that American fiction doesn't really engage with race in a very direct way. And so the books that I had read that were about race were often very, I mean, so hyper subtle that sometimes you were not even sure what the hell was being talked about. Totally. And also so careful because race is such a, you know, Americans are so uncomfortable about race. Oh, man. Oh. And I so I wanted, I wanted a kind of more, I often like to think about when the certain that sort of that idea of French films where they say, oh, we're doing cinema verite, where everything is just about the way it is in life. And I thought, yes, this novel is going to be another version of that. I just want to be very direct about race. And of course, one of the ways I think to do it is to use humor. I think it's it's possible to laugh about things that make us uncomfortable. Mm. Totally. And and there's a there's a sense in which, you know, racism is awful and absurd and um, ugly, and also really fundamentally funny. I mean, because this was, you know, really, when you think about it, you're going to say you cannot vote because your skin is dark. Right, I mean, it's that's absurd. Like, it's yeah. just so absurd. Yeah. Yes, it's so cuckoo, it's so bananas. So I see it what you're saying. Is. Yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying when it's funny because it's so outrageously absurd. Yes. Absurd, huh? yeah, yeah. And I do think also that being sort of a foreigner, quote unquote, gives me a kind of perspective. And I think also gives me a kind of privilege right? because I think it's possible for me as a black woman who is not an African-American, maybe to talk about things uh, in a certain way that I think totally. maybe an African-American would be judged more harshly for doing. Mm. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe that provided you a little bit of covering to be 100% authentic and on the nose and, and honestly believable. Every word that you wrote was so believable. We all just felt like we're there. We're in this story. We are with these characters. We, we see this happening. We believe what they are saying. All of our conclusion was that you wrote straight from the heart. We, that was our sense of it. That was our sense of you. I'm happy to hear that. It's true. And I'm really glad to hear you say it because that's exactly what we thought. We're like, this is no hint of a lie. Nothing in this book. <laughs> this is born of experience and observation and just truth without any deference at all to who's going to read it. And what are they going to think? Didn't matter. Didn't matter because it came off so sincere. I'm so interested right now in elevating and celebrating good things. So community, I'd like to introduce you to Able. If you're not familiar with Able, they are an ethical fashion brand that employs and empowers women as a solution to end poverty. <laughs> Love. They're deeply devoted also to quality, both in the products they make and in the quality of life they aim to provide. So they invest in, train, and educate women so they can earn a living, break the cycle of poverty, and thrive. And would you believe it all started with scarves for them? In Ethiopia, they met women coming out of the commercial sex industry who asked for help finding jobs. So they trained them to make scarves. And after selling over 4,000 of them in two months, they knew they were onto something. And now Abel has grown from hand-woven scarves to a whole lifestyle brand with leather bags and clothes, shoes, jewelry, and more. I have 
so much of their stuff that I wear on constant rotation. I cannot say enough good things about Able. Truly, come check them out for the cause and their incredible business practices and stay for the fashion. You can get 20% off site-wide with my code 20GIN at livefashionable.com. So that's 20GIN at livefashionable.com. We have to talk about the relationship between Obenzi and Ifemilu. They're just, I wanted them to be my real life neighbors. That's how I felt. I wish they lived next door to me. Their relationship obviously filled to overflowing with big, heavy emotions. And even the ones that uh, my longtime theory is that like the love and the emotions we develop when we're younger like in high school are, if they're hard to match because they're so intense, they're just so fiery. How did you first start piecing their stories together? And how did you imagine and see, and then ultimately create their connection changing throughout maybe the drafts of this book? Did you have to rewrite that a few times? Right there. Well, yeah, did you? Yeah, I, that's my, I mean, I often say that writing is not what's difficult. It's the rewriting. I always am constantly sort of changing things and rewriting. And it's hard. I don't even remember what I changed and what I didn't. I think I have the draft of the manuscript somewhere, which, you know. I'm, I'm dying of curiosity. Dying, dying. Anytime I get to talk to a novelist, I'm like, please tell me what you had in a different draft. Because of course, the way you wrote it is the way we received it. And that's the only way we wanted it, right? We wanted everything to go exactly like it did. That's the only thing that matters. I don't think think we should know all the characters Uh who were killed off. Uh (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Where it'll hurt our feelings so bad. Like we wanted how you gave it to us. And so- I'll tell you one thing, I I I do remember at some point in American, sort of merging two characters into one. And it was, I think, in the early, so when she was in high school, I at some point thought there were too many characters, so I merged two into one. Uh-huh. And then you unhooked them later? No, no, no. Oh, no, you did do that. That was that no, made the no, final no. cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, so, yeah. One, so, so one of their friends used to be two people. Oh. Yeah. And you just needed to parse them out. They couldn't be the same person. No, no, no. So it was too, too, I just felt like the, the dialogue was good. I just felt like it was getting too much and I, uh-huh. I wanted to streamline it a bit. I see. Yeah. How many rewrites <laughs> do you typically, nobody understands how unglamorous it is to get a book edited to its, no, it's the worst. It is the worst. When, when my editor sends back, for me, the first round is the worst. I don't know how you feel about it. The first round of edits and it just looks like the whole manuscript is just marked to hell. Yep. And they it's very hate, annoying. They hate very some annoying. of our best things that we wrote, yep. like the best paragraphs, like <laughs> the best piece of the story. They're like, you're not staying true to the center of this. I'm like, ah, but I want it. Don't <laughs> I hate editors. It's, um, <laughs> it's what they call in writing workshops, kill your darlings. Uh, I've said it a million times. I've killed so many darlings. I even keep them in a file folder. So if I ever want to go back and read them, I'm like, there you were. We almost No, but got- you know, also keep them because you might use them for something else. I, I think that all the time. Yeah. 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 I think that all the time. So many times in Americana, we see 
this like through line of the characters feeling like outsiders in the life they're in, they're in their current lives. And so that is so relatable. I mean, it doesn't matter if we have a single thing in common with this particular story arc, that feeling, that feeling is ubiquitous. I'd like to hear you talk about writing about that and why you chose to sort of carry that theme really through the whole story. I guess because, (laughs) because it's one of my things. I'm a person who is um, in some ways consumed (laughs) by the idea of, by a certain kind of longing. I often say that I am nostalgic for things I've never experienced. And I dream and I imagine, and sometimes you think that there's another life that you should be living, but you'd never got the chance to live. And And I think about those things a lot. And, and so often, you know, and I guess it's just that, it's a thing that I was given where you just, your, your imagination is very alive. And often what it does, I think, is to make you feel that, that sense that the ground on which you're walking is not quite the ground that you're supposed to be walking on. Yeah, I often feel like I'm a person watching. I've often felt that I'm not, and, and, this, and there's no reason to feel that way. So I should tell you that my, you know, again, you know, I had a really happy childhood, had had tons of friends. Actually, I was the annoying girl who was voted most popular girl. Uh, of course you yes, were. that was me. Of yes. course you were. Full disclosure. That surprises me but. zero. <laughs> but. <laughs> so I had lots of friends. My, my birthday parties were the coolest things in my, on campus where I grew up. I have to tell you this. But anyway, but, but here's the thing though. So in many ways I had a social life and I had friends, but, but I did always feel that I was watching, that I was one step outside, that I wasn't really in. And and really, when you think about it, I had no reason to think that, but that's how I felt. And so I really understand that feeling. And I think a lot of us feel that way. I think there's something really human about it. Yeah, It's so human. Yeah. Where even though from the outside, everybody thinks, oh, you're really, you know how everything works, you know, but actually you're thinking, I really don't. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I did not know when I was younger that all these adults out here don't know either. I did not know that. I thought all adults, well, you just know everything. You're grown and you're doing everything right because that's what grown's do. I'm 47. I don't know anything. Like I don't know anything at all. So I, it's, I just kind of love that inclusion because It's so universal. No, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's also important to say that, you know, even people who you think have their SHIT together, you know, everyone, I just feel like the thing about being human is we're all just kind of muddling along. You know, we are, (laughs) we are. I say this to my community all the time. This is a big theme that I also sort of run up the flagpole that don't, don't believe what you see in here. Yep. This is not true. This yep. is, it's so curated. It, yep. has, it has left out so many things yep. in any given feed. It's not true. It's not even true of me. Yep. Like even yep. I can look yep. through my last two months, even yep. of things I've said. And I'm like, the things I didn't say could fill a novel. And so we really 
connected to your writing. It's human. You made it so human. And all of us have felt something that all of your characters experienced, all of us, like in completely different contexts, but the inside feeling of it, so relatable. I want to ask you one last question here before we land the plane. I'm so grateful for your time. Um, Americana, it's just so beautiful. I'm just so proud of you for writing such a lovely story, but it touches on so many big, complicated topics. I mean, as mentioned, race and racism and microaggressions and immigration, fear of immigrants, assimilation, white supremacy, you know, the list goes on. You, you steered hard into the curve. (laughs) I wonder just you as the novelist, you know, these, these were the, your choices that you made. Was there a specific theme that was harder for you to address than others maybe? Was there a section or a character or a moment that you really struggled to kind of lay the words down on paper? Hmm. No, I don't think so. I think it wasn't so much that it was a struggle. I think when I was writing Obinza sections, when Obinza is in England, and all of that were actually based on the real experience of someone I talked to, but I was very keen to get it right. Mm. So I did a lot of revision and a, and a lot of re-asking questions, yeah. especially the part about when Obinza is about to be deported. Yes. And what the process is like, because that's actually how it happens. That's, that's right. How it happened at the time. And I really wanted to get that right. So that, so I took a lot of time and really paying attention to detail and just sort of asking the two people who gave me information over and over again, right? You know, just, just to get it right. So that, so I think I paid a bit of attention there in a very kind of detailed and maybe even just a kind of mechanical way rather than an emotional way. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I felt emotional about it. So I don't know if you think you stripped emotion out of that man, but you did not. Oh, no, I, 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 no, I like, think it's no. just, just, just that whole, that whole, you know, what it is like to, because it is, there's a, a great humiliation yes. in, you know, living undercover, first of all, but then now being in a process of being removed from a country where you're locked up in a cell, where you're with people who are so desperate not to be taken away that one man tears off his clothes and says, you know, if you, if you take your clothes off, they can't take you because you're naked. And there's just something about it that's so dehumanizing. Oh, gosh. And I think in some ways I wanted to, you know, in the way that one writes about something, you have to do it honestly because I want to honor this experience. Yes. And also I think for being there, when I was writing Americana, I remember thinking, this is not the kind of sort of immigrant narrative that is familiar about Africa. We're used to Africans who are fleeing war and hardship and poverty and all of those things. We're not used to hearing stories of middle-class Africans who are not starving at all, but who are just dreaming of more. Of course. And so for Binze, who whose life was perfectly comfortable, but who's been dreaming of just more, and then to, to be to kind of go through this humiliation, there's something about it that I really wanted to just try and capture how, you know, how poignant it is because yeah, it's, it's something. And you did, and you did it well. How has the reader feedback been for you on this particular book? It's got to be volumes and volumes in quantity. And I'd love to hear kind of 
what your readers said to you in response to this book? Oh, it's such such a wide range of responses. And I have to say that it never gets old. Yes, that's I'm right. I'm just always delighted. That's right. Every single time I hear about someone, one of my favorite sort of stories, and I hear quite a few of those are people who talk about missing the, the train stops because they were reading it. Yes. I'm just always so delighted every time. I, and that often happens with people in London and New York. I love I'm that so always much. Delighted, always delighted to hear it. The Nigerian women who said to me, how dare you raise expectations and, and give us this lie that Obinza is too perfect. How dare you? This is wrong. And then the women who said to me, we're in love with him. We want his phone number. And, and also the people who've said that, you know, <laughs> the, the thing about not knowing about Black women's hair. And this, this, of course, mostly from white readers, obviously. Black women know about Black women's hair. And also people who just feel that they were educated about race. Mm, you know, I when, love it. And that also makes me happy. And then, and then I remember one of the, I think he teaches at maybe NYU, I forget, but somewhere. And he's an academic and he came to an event that I did. And he said that your novel has made it possible for my class, which is a class on politics and race, to talk about race because it makes it more, it makes it less sort of, personally uncomfortable if we are talking about characters mm. so he says your novel gave us an entry into this really sort of fraught subject and it made me so happy what a wonderful compliment I mean that's incredible that's incredible I, I will never forget it. it just it made me really happy and I thought you know because because in the end what do we want we want at least I want my dream is a world in which we better understand one another yes. you know well you've done it You've done it. You put it out there and it is so thought provoking. I wish we have in the Jen Hatmaker book club. It's big. We've got thousands of women. I just wish you could see all the text threads that we have had this month reading your book. Somebody will post a thing up like this hit me between the eyes. And then there's like a million comments like me too. And here's how, what I learned and here's how it made me feel. And here's how I connected to it. And like, Oh, this character, I want this character to belong to me. Me too. Me too. I mean, we just, you did, you sparked dialogue and that's something that is something that is, you know, for some people like a step one, for some people, it's a step eight just a reinforcement on what they're already learning and what they're being exposed to and who they're choosing to read and what sort of life experience they are observing that has nothing to do with theirs. And so you've just laid a really beautiful layer on top of work that is being done everywhere, but particularly here in America, as we just grapple and wrestle through racism and how to just beat back this old old beast. And so thank you for doing it and for not holding a single word back. Thank you for not making anything easier, for not softening the blow anywhere. It was a real delight to read your work. And so I'm signed up now for everything you've ever written. Okay. I just became a super (laughs) fan. I just created thousands of super fans. And so we're sorry, but here we come. All right. Two last questions for you. Um, we always want to know what our favorite authors that we are reading, like you, we want to know what you're reading. What have you read lately that 
you loved, or it could even be an old book that you loved, like a, like a standard go-to favorite, or maybe something current that you're like, this is required. I should have given you prep on this. When people ask me that question, what are you reading? My brain goes blank. And I'm like, all of a sudden, I feel like I haven't read a single book in my entire life. <laughs> like, I don't know. I've never read anything. I'm not a reader. Okay. So because I'm, I'm working on fiction, when, I, when I'm writing fiction, I, I don't read fiction. Uh, I completely understand. Yes. So I, I read a lot. I read a lot of poetry and I read nonfiction. Got it. So the book I adore and I'm reading again is Rita Dove. She's, I just think she's a fantastic poet. What's just the name of the book? One. This one is called Playlist for the Apocalypse. Okay. And it's, it's poetry. Yeah, it's poetry. Okay. And I also have her collected poems, which I'm looking at. She's just really wonderful. I started reading a few days ago this book by Ted Hughes, which is called Birthday Letters. And it's his poems about Sylvia Plath. And I'm just curious oh. about and so actually when, what you said about what book do, is there a book I think everyone should read? There is. The book called Invisible Women. And it's it's nonfiction. And it's about, I mean, if you look at it, it says data bias in a world designed for men. And it sounds a bit, you know, kind of boring and stuffy, but it's not. Okay. It's a fantastic book. And I think it's so eye-opening because it's it's about it's just a book everyone should read. It's Invisible Women, and it's by Caroline Creai. I'm probably not pronouncing it properly, but her last name is Perez. So Caroline Perez. Don't you worry. I'll find it. And I will link it to every single person in my community, both of those. I wonder if that will have the same impact on me. Did you ever read Half the Sky? Is that a New York Times columnist? Yes, that's right. Oh, no. I think I, actually, I think I have it in my Kindle and I haven't read it. That's right. And his wife. And, you know, of course, one Pulitzer, it's... A brilliant, but it comes from the Chinese proverb that women hold up half the sky. And it sort of walks you in an interesting way systemically through the disempowerment of women everywhere, everywhere, even here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. I, I threw that book across the room a couple of times. Um, it was so painful to yes. me. It's painful because yes, it's true. Women is kind of like that. Too. Okay. I'm into when it. You're like, what? I'm into yeah. it. Totally. Anytime I read about injustice, did you read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow? Yes. Yes. That devastated me. I didn't sleep for a month. Just <laughs> when people do their research and they lay it flat on the page. Yes. And then you just see it for what I it is. Yes. There's no yes. hyperbole. It yeah. isn't, there's no commentary. This mm -hmm. is not from a pundit space. Mm -hmm. It's just, mm -hmm. these are the facts. Mm -hmm. Ooh, girl, I, I've yeah. laid out. I'm yep. laid out. I'm going to read yep. that book. I'm going to order it as soon as we get off this Zoom call. I want to just thank you so much for being here. And, oh, are you able to tell us what you're working on next? Or is it a secret? No, no, no. It's a secret. I hate secrets. It's a novel, though. Da, 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 da. We can't even get that out of you. Can you tell us when we can buy it? Da, 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 da. No, <laughs> Jen, I have to bloody write it before you can buy it. <laughs> That's the worst part about being a writer. Like, I like the part where you sign the contract. <laughs> and I like the part when it's released. But you have to write it. It's yeah. so hard. The yeah. writing part. Uh, okay, well, look. Whatever it is, I am cheering you on. Get those words on the page. We can buy <laughs> your next you, thing. <laughs>
We're here. <laughs> Thank you. We're signed Thank up you. for you. We're, we've pre-ordered it. <laughs> you haven't even turned it in and we've pre-ordered it. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm delighted to have met you truly. Me um, Me any too. way that I can ever support your books, definitely the one you're working on when it's time to come out, you have my information, you send it over and I will like, I will run it straight up the flagpole for my community. Oh, that's very kind. I will actually. I okay, will. do it. Do it. I can't wait. Thank you for being here. Have Thank a great you. day. Sending you all my love and support. You so great it. to meet you. Until Take next care. time. Yes.